So I want to uh, expand tonight the topic that Kamala was speaking about last night, which is the taking of the three refuges, beginning with some exploration of what it actually means to take refuge. Strangely enough, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha really doesn't have anything to do with becoming a Buddhist or calling oneself a Buddhist or adopting an identity or set of beliefs or a dogma, nor does it have to do with rejecting any other faith tradition or a stance of no faith tradition. Taking refuge actually has more to do with this sense of what we sometimes call bright faith in the Buddhist tradition. Bright faith is often likened to the sense of being in a a closed, dark room with all of that sense of confinement and limitation being held back. And then the door swings open. And suddenly we have a sense of possibility We may not know what's going to be on the other side of that door, but that sense of of openness, of bigness, is, is something that happens for us. Kind of reminds me of this uh, time recently. I was in Cleveland, Ohio, and I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's not why I was in Cleveland, but <laughs> since I was there anyway... <laughs> I decided to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I went to the Bruce Springsteen exhibit, um, which had in the front of the glass panel, it had a handwritten uh, set of notes from him, which was uh, the copy of the speech he gave when Bob Dylan was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And he said in that speech, I don't really remember what time of his own life he was referring to, but he said in the speech, I first heard Bob Dylan sing when I was riding in the car with my mom, and Bob Dylan came over the radio. And he said, it was like a giant boot came and kicked open the door of my mind. And then my mom said, that man can't sing. So aside from mom's comment, (laughs) which I also thought was very funny, that sense of this giant boot came and kicked open the door of my mind. It reminded me so much of the sense of bright faith. of Like, oh yeah, life can be different. Things can look different. Maybe the self-image I've been carrying forever doesn't need to prevail. Maybe the sense of limitation, of not being capable of so very much, of a kind of blunted aspiration, maybe that doesn't have to be seen as true. Maybe that can be seen as constructed in some way, as conditioned, rather than having an absolute truth. This is that sense of faith that is engendered by taking refuge. It's not really about wishful thinking, well, if I take refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, you know, I'll never fall asleep while meditating again, or, you know, everything will be just fine. It's not really like that at all, but much more that sense of expansiveness, of, of possibility, as, as Kamala said, of aspiration. 
not to be so held back, not to have a sense that we really aren't capable of so very much, because in fact we are. It kind of reminds me in, in a funny way of this time that Joseph and I went to visit a friend in Houston some years ago, and we went to a restaurant, Joseph, I, and this friend, not to have dinner there, but to order food to bring back to the friend's house. And while we were waiting, Joseph struck up a conversation with the kid behind the counter, this young man. And uh, he started saying how he'd never been out of Houston in his life. But his dream, his most cherished dream, was someday to go to Wyoming. So Joseph said to him, what do you think you'll find there? Like, what does Wyoming mean to you? And he started describing this, this sense of spaciousness, of openness, this really big sky, the sense of being unconfined, unconstrained, the sense of, of real clarity and openness. So Joseph looked at him and said, <clears throat> there's an inner Wyoming too, you know. (laughs) And the kid looked at him and said, that's freaky. And he walked away. (laughs) So but when we take refuge in a way, what we are affirming is just that, that there's an inner Wyoming too. And that we needn't travel a great distance to some faraway place but rather revolutionize our sense of who we are, our witnessing of our experience, however it is, and learn, have a very different sense of understanding of our place in this world, our connection to one another, the nature of reality. So that's how we take refuge. We open we dare to imagine, to have a sense of possibility. And we also place our practice in a very big context to understand that it's not haphazard, that it may be mysterious, of course, and and not so very linear in its unfolding. But we are held in a, a very ancient tradition with a great deal of understanding. Once I was teaching a weekend somewhere, and I was teaching loving-kindness meditation, and somebody came to me who, who was sitting the weekend, all kind of like bright and, and shiny and, and awestruck, and she said to me, when did you make all this up? <laughs> And I said, well, to tell you the truth, (laughs) I didn't make any of it up. (laughs) The Buddha taught this. To really? You know, and of course I've been tempted to say, well, I made it up about a week ago, you know, (laughs) and I've been trying it out on people. What do you think? You know, but it's not like that. And, And so we take refuge to have that sense of being held in something bigger, something that has endured something that has, has that kind of validity. We may develop all kinds of different relationships to that tradition. We may be enfolded by it. We may reject it. All of that is possible, and all of that is fine. 
depending on our own discernment of what seems to be the appropriate relationship. But when we take refuge, we are acknowledging that it exists and that that's the context within which we practice. So the objects of refuge, classically, are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. As Kamala said last night, the Buddha is seen in this tradition as a human being. He's not seen as somebody who was granted omniscient understanding and boundless love and compassion through a divine agency. It wasn't a gift. It was considered the power of his own awareness and his own mental development that allowed him to open that much, to see things that clearly to love, to care so unstintingly. He was a human being, and he had some very human questions, I've always felt, about the nature of life. It was almost as though he were asking, you know, what does it mean to be born into this human body, to be so helpless and vulnerable as an infant, so vulnerable to the effects of others, how they treat us, how we're conditioned. And then to grow up, to grow older, to get sick, to die, whether we like it or not. And is there a quality of happiness that is not broken as the body follows its own nature? And what does it mean to have a human mind where we might wake up in the morning filled with fear and then faith and then doubt and then joy and then sorrow and then just this constant cascade of feelings, of emotions, of impressions, of perceptions that don't seem to be under our control, under our domination. I mean, how many times have we tried and how successful has it ever been to say, okay, I've suffered enough. I'm not going to grieve anymore. I won't feel fear ever again. We might say it. We might say it really loudly. (laughs) We may say it really quickly. But the mind seems to have its own nature. And so, in effect, the Buddha asked, is there a way, given this constant change, so much outside of our personal control, that we can be happy anyway? His quest, in fact, was just that. And as I said, it is said in the tradition that the the answers he came to, the resolutions he found, he came to through the power of his own awareness, and so can we. Whatever our deepest questions may be about the nature of life, about our own nature, what we discover is through the power of our own awareness. So I often think of taking refuge in the Buddha as a kind of transparency. We look at the Buddha because the Buddha says something about ourselves, about who we might be. And it's not just me, you know, because I am so great, but we look at ourselves in a way that recognizes this capacity, this potential, for awakening, for awareness, for love, for compassion in everybody. 
in all of sentient life. So we look at the Buddha to see ourselves. We look at ourselves to see all beings. It's very connected. I think often of the Buddha as a completely integrated being. And this was my first feeling when I went to Asia, which was in 1970, and began practicing meditation in very early uh, January of 1971, which was the first time I ever saw a Buddha image as a kind of sacred object. I'd grown up in New York City, and I'd seen a number of them in Chinese restaurants or something like that, but I'd never really seen one held in, in that kind of regard or respect. And I can remember looking at it, and my strongest impression was of the Buddha as a completely integrated being. You know how so many of us, perhaps most of us are, with our lives quite fragmented and split apart and, uh, and not very whole, so that we might experience ourselves as one kind of person when we're at work and a completely different person when we're at home with our families. Or we might be filled with loving kindness for all beings everywhere as long as we're alone. But once we're in an actual encounter, it's very difficult. Or we might be fine when we're with others but terrified of being alone. For so many of us, our lives are split apart. And certainly, that's how I experienced myself when I went to India. I took a look at this Buddha statue, and I thought, here was a being who was who he was. Guided by the threads of wisdom and compassion, whether he was alone or he was with others, whether he was still or wandering about India teaching, he was who he was. There wasn't that sense of, of division, of being split apart. And I would say that that characterized all of my teachers as well. You know, um, I think of the Dalai Lama now. I don't ever get a sense of him kind of greeting the world publicly with that kind of face of compassion and then grumbling when he's back in his hotel, like, oh, they're so boring out there, you know? Do I have to go back out and teach? You know, that sense of wholeness, of integrity, not one public person and a different private person, to have the values, the, the threads of what we really care about more than anything present in any circumstance. That was my first powerful sense of the Buddha. And what's so extraordinary, really, is his invitation to be that way, to wake up, to see clearly, to have our being come together, to be who we are in that, in that holistic sense, in any circumstance, not to have our happiness bound by circumstance or condition, to discover that inner Wyoming, wherever we are. And the fact that that invitation is extended to everybody, no one left out, is amazing. You know, he wasn't saying that only the lucky people or the talented people or the people from good families could be free of habit. 
He said anybody can come to see more clearly, can be free, can be awakened, can be enlightened. Isn't that amazing? I mean, just think about the last party you were at. And imagine looking around the room and thinking, everyone here has the capacity to get enlightened. Wow. Unlikely. You know, that's not how we see the world. But imagine, no one left out. Everybody. A completely inclusive vision of possibility. That everybody has this capacity a pretty amazing sense of human nature. And this is what we see when we look at the Buddha, when we take refuge in the Buddha, is how he saw us, how he sees us, and the nature of life. And so it's taught that this capacity for awareness, for wakefulness, for wisdom, for growth, for love, for compassion, is innate to our being as a capacity, as a potential. It may be covered over, it may be something hidden from us, it may be something we're not so in touch with, and it certainly may be something we don't trust, but it's there. And as a capacity, as a potential, it can never be destroyed. No matter what we may have gone through, no matter what we may yet go through, it can never be destroyed. So we practice with some confidence, actually, that we have within us that, that possibility. That's the, the gift of taking refuge in the Buddha. And we take refuge in the, the Dharma, in Sanskrit or Dhamma in Pali language, we take refuge in the fact that there is a way. And this is extremely important. Most of us tend to have the habit of, even when that door opens and we have a sense of possibility, not recognizing we can get up and we can go out. We can go for it. We can see what's true for us. Many times we have the habit of deferring thinking, oh, isn't that great? You know, the Buddha got enlightened sitting under a tree. Think about that. Or imagining ourselves excluded. Wow, it must be extraordinary to have a really free mind. But I think you could probably only do it, you know, if you lived in that time 2,500 years ago or or if you don't have any responsibilities or, or if your life was was completely open-ended. Not for me or so many ways in which we feel ourselves left out. To recognize that there is a way and that we, we practice in, in recognition of that way is actually the most important thing, to have a sense of path and to realize that path exists for us. What we need to do is put out the effort to take an ideal, an abstraction, and make it real, to breathe life into it. That is the most significant thing about our practice. So one of my teachers once said, 
The most important moment of your meditation practice is the moment you sit down to do it. Because in that moment, you are saying something about what you have faith in, about having a sense of possibility, sense of possibility for yourself, realizing that tomorrow doesn't necessarily have to look like today, that there's change. That's the most important moment where we're not just thinking, oh, isn't that great? The Buddha got enlightened. But we're seeing what can happen for us. That's taking refuge in the Dharma in the, in the truest sense. So one of my early teachers that Joseph talked about last night was Kamala's teacher as well. It's a man named Anagarika Manindra said to me quite early on in my practice in India <clears throat> something that was very important for me when he said, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. And it was it's somewhat hard to convey the tone exactly in which he said that, but it was really a fantastic moment because it felt like maybe for the first time ever in my life, Somebody was looking at me with that sense of, you can solve your problem. You can solve the problem of your confusion and unhappiness, which has brought you here to India to begin with. You can do this. Here's the way. So many times in the West, when we hear about effort and so much emphasis on making right effort and um, not holding back and really putting effort into the practice, it sounds so ominous and uh, kind of overbearing and unpleasant. But I actually think of effort as the single most empowering teaching in the Buddhist tradition. Because look at what it is it is offering. You don't have to get the truth from anybody else. And if nobody gives it to you, nobody can take it away from you. You are capable of seeing things for yourself in a very different way. You're capable of being free of those habits of mind that have caused you so much pain. You can do this. Here it is, step by step. That's an amazing thing. I think about when I first heard the Buddhist teaching, I was a college student at the State University of New York at Buffalo, And I took a course in Asian philosophy, which was basically really a course in Buddhism. And it was so powerful for me to hear the Buddhist teaching that the school also had an independent study program where if you created a project that the administration approved of, you could go anywhere in the world, theoretically for a year, and study whatever it is in the project you designed, and then you'd come back, theoretically, (laughs) for your final year um, and do a kind of cross-cultural study. And My joke is usually being Buffalo, New York, many people went, and not that many people came back, which was true. Um, God knows how much snow they have even right now. But I created an independent study project, and I asked to be sent to India to study Buddhist meditation. I think about that moment so much because it would have been so easy just to stay and to read more books or or kind of, you know, admire from afar the possibility 
But to actually go to the other end of the world or to come to a place like this is an amazing thing. It's really taking refuge in the Dharma. It's not deferring. It's not holding an abstraction. It's not thinking about what might be for other people. It's really seeing what can be true for yourself through the power of your own effort. And that is really remarkable. We take refuge in the Dharma as a recognition that there are laws of nature operating in life, that there's a bigger picture. We may not always be able to see it clearly, but we can sense it. And that gives us a context to everything that we do experience. We take refuge in the Dharma as a way of seeing things differently, not to be bound just to how they appear on the surface or how we've always related to them, but being willing to take some risks, being willing to let go of what is conventional or convenient, to see things in rather a a different way, to pay attention and to see what might ensue. This last um, spring, I went up to Toronto. Maybe some of you were there, actually, uh, where the Dalai Lama was doing an 11-day ritual called the Kala Chakra. Um, And I was sitting next to a friend of mine. He was sitting on the aisle, and I, I was sitting just next to him, and you know, I had many friends, like this whole row of people were really people that I knew. And the, the chairs were, these rented chairs, we were in like an exhibition hall, um, and they were very, very uncomfortable. And they were all hooked together, you know, on these things on each side of the chair. And it was so tight that if somebody, like in the middle of the row, leaned to the left, everyone else had to lean to the left, you know. And we were just sitting there day after day after day. And, and one day my friend, sitting on my left, on the aisle, tapped me on the shoulder. And I looked over at him, and he said to me, unhook your chair. And I looked down, and I saw he'd unhooked his chair from mine. And I thought, wow. And I turned to my friend on the other side, and I unhooked my chair from hers. And then we started this revolution. It's like everybody unhooked their chairs, and we were like spread out, you know, we're happy. And it was such a wonderful moment, like unhook your chair. And I thought, oh, my God, how many days have I been sitting here? You know, four days or something like that, just kind of, you know. That's what I mean by seeing things differently. You know, we take so much for granted and we just sit there passively and we're hurting, you know, we're uncomfortable. But we don't think. Oh, maybe I can just unhook from this a little bit. I have more room. This would feel better. Until we train our attention in some way. That's also taking refuge in the Dharma, being willing to see things differently. And we take refuge in the Dharma in the sense of, in that seeing, we pay attention to those laws of nature, those underlying truths of how things are. And part of that recognition is that every experience that comes our way is a reflection of these underlying truths, which 
in Buddhist teaching would be things like impermanence, evanescence, the ever-changing nature of things, where nothing is solid, nothing lasts, nothing is fixed, everything is mutable, everything is moving. Laws like the unsatisfactoriness of things in the sense of their fleeting nature, so that when we cling, when we try to hold on, we suffer. The tentativeness, the, almost like the, um, uh, the lack of solidity in our experience, the insecurity. And we see the dreamlike nature of things, the insubstantiality, We see how everything really arises due to causes and conditions and that nothing and no one stands alone and apart and separate and independent. That there is no solid self we can point to within that's pulling the strings, that's saying, okay, this afternoon I'll be full of hope, and then tonight I'll get a little bit of anger, but you know I'll stop that by 8 o'clock, and then it's not like that. Everything arises due to causes and conditions. Nothing stands alone. Nothing stands apart from those causes and conditions. It's a world of interdependence and emptiness. We see these, these laws of nature in any experience that comes our way. Because, in fact, if there are laws of nature, they're manifest everywhere, whether it's a knee pain or a beautiful, lovely sensation filling our bodies, whether it's anger or joy. We can see through the immediate experience to these underlying laws because they're everywhere. It's like in uh, the Chinese tradition, they say something like, If you want to understand the nature of water, then look at the waves. Look at the waves. Look right through the waves. And you'll see the nature of water. They don't say flatten out the waves or get rid of the waves. Look right into it. And this is what you'll see. So what this translates as is the understanding that whatever we experience is okay. It's not that we have to trade in what's going on with us right now for something that seems better or more spiritual or more desirable. We need to see into it in a very deep way. So when we take refuge in the Dharma, it is this understanding that anything that we experience is okay because it is all reflective of deeper truths, and we can use anything It is not a question of somehow trying to grit your teeth and get rid of what's actually going on and reach out for that dream experience, you know, that you've always wanted to be sitting there bathed in white light. It doesn't matter. Because what matters is that kind of seeing, and that can happen anywhere. So we take refuge in the Dharma to affirm our conviction that the immediate experience, whatever it is, is our vehicle for seeing the truth of things, our own truth. And then we're free from all that judgment and hankering and wanting and rejecting and resentment and 
all those things that we tend to bring right into our practice experience that don't have to be so predominant. And then we take refuge in the Sangha, which is the last of the traditional refuges. We take refuge in the Sangha with many different meanings. Traditional meanings are, first of all, the monastic Sangha, monks and the nuns who, uh, for generations, for centuries, have preserved the teachings of the Buddha. Isn't that amazing? We all know that you can barely have a conversation with one person and check in an hour later with another person who's talked to that other person in the the meantime and have it be straight or consistent. You know, that all these centuries there's been a, a tradition held intact. It's pretty amazing. And we take refuge in the Sangha in the sense of those beings who since the beginning of time have walked a path, who've realized the truth, who've dared to be different, to take a risk, to see things more clearly, those who've become free. Because they, like the Buddha, are our confirmation that this is possible for us. That men and women and even children have seen things so clearly that they have become free, that they've woken up, and so can we. And then the contemporary meaning of sangha really is uh, is very often described as those we practice with, those we walk a path with. So all of us, all of us here gathered together, recognizing a certain um, support, a sense of reliance that we actually get from one another. However, you know, even if we don't know one another, even if we don't especially like one another um, on a certain level, still there's a, there's a kind of power in, in this coming together in this way. And I actually like to think of Sangha in a bigger sense. Um, but before I get to that, actually, you know, staying with this community of, of people coming together there's a way in which even just the taking of the precepts creates an amazing container for practice. And we can know that being here, no matter what any of us might feel, we're actually not going to cause harm to one another. We can know that about ourselves as well. We may be filled with anger, but we're not going to jump on somebody, you know, and try to hurt them. And in some way, that almost gives us permission to face the anger more directly, to see into its nature, knowing we are protected from acting on it. Because this is the, the, the bond of this community. We will not harm one another. To know that we can 
you know, leave something in the middle of this room, and it's going to be here when we come back. And we're not threatened by one another. We don't have to feel so defensive around one another. It's the way we have taken refuge in the sangha of of our community. And many years ago, when we'd first come back from Asia, uh, Joseph and I from India, and then Jack Cornfield from Thailand, and we began teaching together, and we're kind of traveling around, and um, and then started the center here. And some of our friends came to us and said, and of course this was quite a long time ago. This was like 28 years ago or something, or, you know, 27 years ago. Some of our friends came to us and said, well, you know, our parents are, are extremely upset about this strange new hobby that we have, uh, meditating, you know, and they think it's just bizarre, and, you know, people weren't studying our brain waves in those days, you know, and, and affirming that meditation was good for your brain, you know, it was very weird uh, in the eyes of many people. And, and so these friends said, you know, my, my parents are just like completely freaked out. They're so upset. They're so distraught that I'm doing this. Why don't you think about hosting a retreat for a group of these parents? So we said, oh, that's a good idea. And So we gathered all of these hostile, frightened people together <laughs> in what we called the parents' retreat. And we knew that they could never be silent, and especially not during meals, which was just considered too bizarre to even imagine. So we ate with them, and we talked during meals and, and things like that. And um, the very first morning... Joseph and I were sitting at the same dining room table with some of the parents, and and one of the women said uh, to Joseph, she said, you've kidnapped my daughter and you've brainwashed her, and it's not going to happen to me. (laughs) So that was sort of the general tone of the retreat (laughs) in the beginning. And what was so poignant for me was that these people would come here into the meditation hall with like all their stuff, all their belongings, because they couldn't imagine a world well, you'd leave it in your room. It just, you know, so they'd schlep all these things and it's just like these big piles of things. And, and people, you know, would, would like lock the doors of their rooms behind them and we didn't have any keys. You know, somebody was always running around looking for a master key to let these poor people into their rooms. And I thought, look at that. This is how we usually live. You know, we're so guarded, we're so frightened, and not without good reason a lot of the time. You know, so look at what we can create here. It's an amazing thing to have that kind of regard for one another that we really are committed not to harm, that this is how we're going to be. So in the larger sense of sangha, which I uh, have been thinking about more lately, has a lot to do with <clears throat> with actually our interdependence with life, with a bigger picture of life. Like if those of us sitting here right now just thought for a moment, okay, how many of us are actually here right now in the room, represented in one way or another, Certainly there are those of us who are here physically. And what if we included everyone who helped us be here together? 
for this retreat. Those who perhaps right now are taking care of things at home or or those who told us first about meditation practice and inspired us in some way to be here or read us a poem or or describe their own retreat or, or whatever it was. Many, many layers of connections and influences and encounters and relationships. What if they were all here too? And those of us who, those beings, those people in our life who have really, really hurt us, not just those people we find annoying or irritating, but those who have really, really hurt us. So they've almost brought us to an edge where we have said, I've got to find a new meaning of happiness. I've got to learn to see things differently. Because they also may have been a potent force in bringing us here too. So what if we included them? And those beings who made the clothes that we're wearing and grew the food that we ate today, as well as those who cooked the food that we ate today, There's layers and layers and layers of, of, of connections as we open to really this bigger sense of the fabric of life. Here, too, we can see none of us is really here all alone. We have been brought here through all of these, these layers of connection, not apart from them. And would I be here had I not gone to school in Buffalo, New York? I don't know. But it's really big when we understand actually who is here in some way. And that is, in some way, the truest picture of our lives. That everything arises due to causes and conditions. All of us are inextricably linked to a very big picture of life. This is the fabric of existence. That is really our sangha. It's all beings everywhere. So these are our three refuges, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the sangha. We take refuge to open up our minds, to open up our hearts, to not feel so stuck, to not feel so afraid, to realize we're not alone, to realize this path makes sense, even when it doesn't seem to make any sense. That things are okay, really, fundamentally. We take refuge in our own way. You know, perhaps this kind of formal, classical expression, or perhaps it's, it's more personal and it's, it's more... Uh, unique to you and what what does these things for you. But that's what's really important is is to have that kind of openness to recognize our own potential, to recognize the most important thing, which is actually walking a path, making it real, and to recognize that we're not doing it all alone, no matter what. So let's sit together for a few minutes. <laughs> 